Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Ask a Medievalist. I'm M. I'm the Ask portion of this team, and joining me is Dr. Jesse Noose, who is a medievalist. Yes. Thank you for having me. Yes. Which is awesome. Well. But also, of course, <laughs> we are cousins, so you know. Yes. I'm the local medievalist. Yes, the only medievalist to whom I have access. And actually, I feel like we should say how this started, which is with the comic you drew. Okay, so back in December of 2019, there was a fight going on at the Wisconsin State Legislature about whether or not to call the decorated uh, pine tree, I guess, that sits in the Capitol Rotunda, a Christmas tree or a holiday tree. And aside from finding this the most ridiculous use of legislative time I've ever heard of, um, it made me curious about the origins of the Christmas tree. And the more that I started looking into it, the more interesting it sort of seemed, because it is like a tree that you put in your house and you sort of decorate it like like a shrine or an altar. And so I draw a long-running sort of journal comic called M.I. And I decided to do um, a comic about this Christmas tree thing. And in the middle of the comic, um, while the characters are trying to sort of discern fact from fiction, somebody says, let's ask a medievalist. And then I interviewed Jesse, part of the comic. And so when I finished it and I posted it and it got shared around Facebook, a couple of people had commented, you guys should collaborate on a, a podcast or something called Ask a Medievalist because it sounds like it would be really fun. And at first we kind of laughed it off. And then a couple of weeks later, I think I was out running and thinking about it and I don't remember if I even got back from the run. I think I was at a stoplight and I texted Jessie and said, hey, what if we actually did this? And for some reason, she thought this was a great idea. So yeah, here we are. Yes. It's like that was peer pressure. Yes. Well, also, I think it was one of those moments when it's the kind of thing everyone wonders and there are lots of rumors running around the internet. So it was nice to have somebody sort through them. Yes, these things. Christmas is a big one. Easter is another big one. And we can talk about Easter in a future podcast, potentially. But you get all sorts of writers from the Venerable Bead on talking about what happened, what gods or goddesses they suspect were associated with it. Okay. The uh, history as a subject wasn't exactly history back then, mm -hmm. um, the way we know it. So you have to kind of sift through what was the rumor mill of the ancient world churning and what was real. Yes. And for me, instead of bothering to read Wikipedia, I just text my medievalist and ask her. So Yay. the idea behind this podcast is to address other topics of uh, interest in the medieval world and also give other people a chance to ask questions uh, if they if they would like to ask a medievalist. Absolutely. Yes. And I think it's an interesting point that there are certain things everyone sort of wonders about. Holidays are a good one, obviously. And especially when you have sort of moments like Neil Gaiman just gave LeVar Burton sort of blanket okay to read anything he ever wrote, right, for Reading Rainbow. Yes. Because there's not a lot of stuff in public domain, which is phenomenal. But writers like Gaiman, of course 
um, absolutely sort of mine the past for all sorts of interesting stories and figures. And it's a great sort of resource, I think, especially for teaching. Um, but it's also one of those things that then sort of gives the public new curiosity about who a lot of those people may have been or where did those stories originate. Yeah, I, I know that I found out about a lot of historical figures like John D from reading yes. Sandman. <laughs> yes. He turns up in a lot of things, actually. He was kind of a weird guy. Yes. And what you said, actually, about the way history is recorded, in some ways, we record history the same way everybody always has, and we sort of leave it to the future, <laughs> right, increasingly to figure out what was real and what wasn't, right? That's sort of yeah. the point of history, right? We always say history will be the judge, but various points, right? Like every time mm -hmm. you sort of move a certain increment, maybe a decade, maybe two decades, maybe three decades, everything sort of gets rejudged. Um, and we still work like that in a lot of ways. So John D, who one of the places he may or may not have turned up is in Dr. Faustus in, in Marlowe's play. And there's probably not. <laughs> um, because he, that sort of probably isn't. But there were people who sort of speculated um, that he may have been known, he may have been around, depending on when the play was written, all these things. But Ben Johnson really did know who he was, um, and I think ended up owning a book that had been in Dee's collection. So for Johnson and the alchemist, <laughs> that connection is real, possibly. Which isn't to say the alchemist is anything like John Dee, but there might be a little bit of a connection there. Right, that that connection is sort of real. Um, but yeah. history did sort of look back at Faustus and think maybe that had something to do with D as well um, because of the sort of rumors of how powerful he was. And that's really what you then see in Sandman, obviously, mm -hmm. <laughs> on some level. Yeah. So, yeah, Sandman is a fantastic reference, honestly, <laughs> for... Yeah. Um, well, he's he's got everyone from, like, the... Let's call it the very late Middle Ages, early Renaissance onward. Mm -hmm. um, Shakespeare turns up, and lots of lots of different figures. Yeah, like, my favorite one was the one with Samuel Clemens and the Emperor of uh, America. Yes, which is unfortunately a little bit recent, um, historically speaking. But yes, perhaps there is perhaps... one though with um, Chaucer. Yes, we show up in an inn, and people are telling stories. And actually, Sandman itself, yeah, um, it's where we meet the Wanderer, who himself is based on a legend that does go back even before the Middle Ages, actually, mm -hmm. um, to the late, late antiquity. The Chaucer in the fact that Sandman itself then frames itself that way, and the sort of one of the final episodes is everybody in an inn where you have to tell a story. Um, and of course, Chaucer just starts in an inn, you tell the story on the pilgrimage, but similar, nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there are a lot of brilliant references, right, to the things that Gaiman sort of treasured. Um, but actually, the, the idea of the a character who's forced to wander, in this case, because he doesn't die, that's sort of the theory in Sandman. That's something we could talk about, because that's certainly, that's a character that shows up frequently. I'm thinking, That's yes. in a lot of places. <laughs> um, as do characters like Dr. Faustus, obviously. Which I'm betting that lots of people mm -hmm. will complain that I said it probably isn't necessarily John D. Who's to say, really? It could be. <laughs> um, but it's not clear if the propaganda that that's what he was like was as much propaganda then as it became later, essentially. Right? This is sort of another problem with history. Sometimes you yeah. don't know when certain stories show up. But he was definitely famous. <laughs> All right. Well, before we go any further and uh, 
start thinking about, you know, the things we're going to talk about, why don't we do some introductions more formally? Um, and you can tell us, like, what brings you to medievalism from, uh, from whence did you develop these interests? Ah, yes. Um, so I know that you grew up with an English professor. Yes. Which, you know, that certainly brings you to a certain set of ideas in life. And then you were very into Shakespeare when you started your undergrad. Yes. Yeah. Essentially, Shakespeare has, of course, always been a favorite. I do theater. And in the English-speaking world, Shakespeare is the king. Um, to be fair, though, one of the things I actually sort of teach now is the idea that even though Shakespeare, the man, was English, right, and born in Stratford and also died in Stratford, right, um, in 1616, etc., that really it's unfair to call Shakespeare an English playwright these days because he's so important globally. He's been translated and done in so many different ways brilliantly um, that it's a sort of, it's almost a form of colonialism, the same way colonialism sort of instilled Shakespeare everywhere um, to now insist that he be considered English and that somehow if you're not doing him in English, it's not as original or not as authentic um, is itself a sort of form of colonialism and largely unfair. And so I teach sort of a lot of global Shakespeare when we do Shakespeare in class. One of the things about Shakespeare, of course, is that because he is so known everywhere, um, there's not really a shortage of people studying him. And I was always more interested in the theater, really, ultimately. And so the classics, which is something I also studied. I did Latin in high school, and then I did Greek in college as well. Classics was always very invested in looking at the plays from the classical world, which is, of course, sort of the earliest that we think of as Western. Although, again, that's a little iffy to call them Western. But Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, right? The sort of originals. And we might have a play that is attributed to Aeschylus but wasn't written by him, but we don't know who wrote it. So we basically have the three playwrights. And... yeah. The classical sort of world, classical studies, um, tends to take the theater side of that very seriously, which is, say, the performance side of it. Um, and they certainly do all of the textual scholarship because, obviously, the textual history is incredibly fragmented. The texts are so old, right? But they are very invested also in performance and to think about the ways in which masks and music and dance um, would have mattered, right? The use of the chorus, all of these famous things about Greek theater. And so I thought for a while that I would do graduate school in classics. Um, but I went abroad the summer, I guess, between my junior and senior years to Italy. Oh, yes. I remember that. You went to Perugia. Yes. And I ran essentially into the Middle Ages because Italy is essentially... You can't escape it in Italy. No. Yeah. <laughs> and it's... Um, you can see the layers, right? It's like looking at a rock with different layers, you know, the sort of the pink layer and the gray layer, and you can see the strata. Mm -hmm. So you go to Italy, right? And you see the Etruscans and the Romans and the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, right? It's all just built, yeah. sometimes quite literally. Uh, one of the things about Perugia was that uh, the Rocca Paulina, there was this fort that was built by one of the popes, Pauls, one of the Pauls, and essentially this neighborhood that was sort of run by the specific family that he did not get along with, it was leveled, filled in, and this fort was built on top of it to sort of maintain order in Perugia. And eventually it was torn down by the citizens, supposedly like with their bare hands, you know. So fast forward hundreds of years, 
to shortly before I arrived, so sort of the 90s, basically. There was some digging around, as occasionally happens, of course, and they realized that a large chunk of the neighborhood that had existed was actually still there under what used to be the fort, under the sort of the, the plaza and all the buildings that were a fort. And I think they were, I think it was a bank, ultimately, that they built. But they reinforced it, and they dug it all out again, right? Because the neighborhood had really just been filled in, and this had all been built on top of it. So they hadn't actually, they'd certainly destroyed sort of, you know, you'd say like the top story, but mm -hmm. not everything. And you could take this long escalator down and basically wander around these streets. You know, it's just a little bit. It's not a huge, but this little corner of this neighborhood um, underneath this sort of modern building, basically, um, which was just extraordinary. Um, and so the problem with being a medievalist, if you wanted to study theater, is that if you had taken a theater history class at the time, and sort of if you have even today, really, many years later, usually medieval theater is not seen as particularly sophisticated. It's like passion plays sort of things. Yes. Right? Um, passion plays are certainly one of the big things. Or what those, those things where they would do like standing in a position... Am I remembering this? Yes, tableau. It's been a really long time. Tableaus. Yes. Yeah. yeah, tableau vivant. Um, which is something that maintains its popularity in Europe continuously, but sort of falls out in the US. Does it really? Yeah. Um, tableau. Oh. It's one of the it's sort of a party game that they continued to play well into like Victorian and past. Yeah. You'd create tableaus of like famous paintings. Um, and they still do it. We don't do it as much in the US, although actually the classics department at Northwestern, when I was a grad student there, created a calendar for a fundraiser where the students had the professors dress up and recreate Renaissance paintings about Roman and Greek sort of moments in history, <laughs> right? These, there are a lot of oh. those famous paintings, right? Like the death of Socrates and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, so they had to recreate that. It's really phenomenal and hilarious. And as I recall, the dogs of one of the professors, they played a lion in one of the paintings. <laughs> um, I, ha I still have that calendar somewhere. But that aspect, yes, of theater um, is sort of what's known and people generally consider that side boring, which is very unfair. Um, if they know anything else, it's probably the morality plays, which sometimes people like better. It depends. Um, some of them, of course, are brilliant. And then there are the incredibly bawdy farces that you may or may not read, depending on whether or not your professor is willing to deal with those things in an undergraduate class. So that's the extent of what people sort of know about medieval theater. And it's, it is very unfair because actually there's a ton of stuff going on. It's incredible. It leads, you have music, obviously, and dance and all sorts of really incredible um, art forms. And it will lead into commedia, for example, um, and ultimately also into things like the theater of Shakespeare's England, which is, of course, really the thing that eclipsed to the Middle Ages, not just in England, but even sort of across Europe. France made a very specific strategic effort to sever itself <laughs> from the Middle Ages. Um, so the era of Moliere and Racine, right, the Renaissance, mm -hmm. the sort of neoclassical drama, um, the idea that you sort of erase the Middle Ages and draw a straight line back to the Roman period. And a lot of that sort of attempt and that sense of the history of the Middle Ages, once you hit the Renaissance, really sort of crushed a lot of the interest in medieval theater. And so I sort of believed the hype, I guess, and I didn't really want to be a medievalist. But when I got to Northwestern, there were some brilliant, brilliant medieval professors who essentially convinced me. And so that's what happened. 
and I ended up writing my dissertation essentially on performances of the Passion. Hmm. And then, of course, also if you are a medievalist, you get access to both the Renaissance and the classical world because the Middle Ages is a thousand years long. So if you're an early medievalist yeah. or a late medievalist, you get access to the thing on the other side. So let's talk about that. We're talking about, what, 500 to 1500? Yep. Is that the usual? Why would you define an era as that long? Like, it feels like, although you could have, a, for lack of a better term, a continuous society in one place, like, obviously, there are cities that have been around for much longer than that. Um, like London, Londinium. Right. It's hard to imagine the culture as continuous or like lump it into one single era the way that you would sort of the Renaissance. Yeah, it's um, essentially because of that sense that the Renaissance had when they called themselves the Renaissance. It's the rebirth of the classical world. So they sort of dropped out everything that came in between which was about a thousand years. And that meant that sort of by default, once you start to move out of the Renaissance and you find people who care about the intermediate period, who sort of look back and say, wait a minute, you can't actually ignore a thousand years, a thousand plus years, really. What happened in that time? You can't say that nothing that happened in that time mattered later. Of course, there's not a straight line from the classical world to the Renaissance. There's nothing like a straight line. The Renaissance comes out of the Middle Ages. It happens because of the Middle Ages. Why? But, you know, scholars were already saddled, essentially, with a period <laughs> that filled in all of the gaps between what was assumed to be the end of the classical world and the beginning of, essentially, the modern world. And so that's why that period exists. And there's, there's a lot of gray area. So Renaissance sort of begins in 1400 in Italy, right? Um, so the, that whole century in Italy is the sort of... Um, era that everybody gets. And late antiquity is very much the same way. Um, 400 to 500, even really 300 to 500, medievalists will definitely poke their nose into that area as well. It's like right, right around the fall of Rome yes. type of thing that was basically. Like... Yeah. And late antiquity still gets a couple centuries after that, basically. Again, it's one of those gray areas. Early medievalists are allowed to sort of step over that line and do. Um, so in practice, if you go to a medieval conference, for example, at Kalamazoo, you can hear talks about anything from 300 to 1600. And honestly, beyond, because then there are things like... That's a pretty good range. But then there's also medievalisms. So things like Tolkien, who, of course, oh. was a medievalist, <laughs> but also created something that is absolutely the quintessential medievalism, right? It is. It mm -hmm. seems medieval. It is like a medieval saga. But of course... He invented it. So medievalists are not shy about poking their nose into <laughs> really most. Similarly, the um, the uh, famous movie Monty Python and the Holy oh, Grail. Oh, of course. Yes, very famous medievalism. Yes. Well, and Terry Jones actually also was a medievalist. Wrote a book on Chaucer. I mean, he wrote a lot about the Middle Ages. He had a TV show about the Middle Ages that is wonderful. That he told fun stories, which. You know, hopefully this podcast will be a little bit like that in some ways. And he actually went to Kalamazoo a few years. The sort of the first years I was going, he was there a couple times. Yeah. Cool. So absolutely, you know, and obviously they all went to Oxford and Cambridge. They they were very well trained yes. in their respective fields, right? Graham Chapman was a doctor. Uh, universities that actually began during the Middle Ages. Absolutely. Yeah. So the original deal. Yes. And of course, sort of late, right? England is always late culturally. <laughs> 
even though they're very early in other ways, which is to say... Because they're on an island, like, it takes the culture a while to get basically, there. Basically, yeah. I mean, that's, that's what Europe would argue, I'm sure. Yes, I think England would agree. I mean, you got to cross the channel. You know, things make it as far as France, and then they have to make an effort <laughs> to go any further, you know. They look at the channel, and they're like, eh, tomorrow. Yes. We'll go tomorrow. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it used to be no joke, right? And so now, of course, you can channel it. Yeah. But that's... I mean, people swim across it also yes. pretty frequently. But now, of course, but you only do that if you, you want a... to. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. It's not the only way to get right. there. And usually there's like a boat following you and etc. And of course, if you're in a yes. boat, it's because you chose to take the boat. You're not forced to take it no matter what. Mm-hmm. All of those things. Yeah. But it is sort of interesting because it, it is seen as sort of the boondocks for a long time really until we hit sort of the Elizabethan period, maybe a little bit early, Henry, under Henry. Then, of course, it sort of explodes, right? And they end up, Mm -hmm. they would say, you know, of course, dominating the world in many ways. But they are early in some other ways. For example, sort of national identity is something that England starts trying to solidify before a lot of other countries in Western Europe do. Um, And it's also worth remembering, of course, that the Middle Ages becomes the term for everything around the globe. So even though, of course, it's named that specifically because of the way Europe develops, it ends up being the term for the thousand years before modern colonization. So if we agree that sort of the modern world starts to arise, really in 1492, we could say, right? The moment of sort of no return. Mm, Sure. When the entire globe is going to learn about the existence of everybody else on the globe. And even if you decide to sever yourself from society, like North Korea today, people still know you're there, right? The thousand years prior to that has become the study of the Middle Ages everywhere. So the medieval, medieval Americas, for example, is sort of just, is again, the thousand years before that. Approximately the era when... There's some great civilizations, of course. Notre Dame was built in 1200, and so was Angkor Wat, mm-hmm. I think. Right around the same time. Yeah. And there's some famous stories about the Spanish arriving in the Americas and seeing mm-hmm. what was built there and being astonished, right? Yes. I, I know so little about it, except that a lot of the stories that we've sort of been led to believe from movies and such of uh, mm-hmm. small tribes of people wandering on a vast right. buffalo-infested <laughs> right. plain... That right. like these are entirely invented, yes. and that there was actually a very large and complex civilization with large cities. Yes, um, I know near here in uh, in Wisconsin, there's a place known as Aztlan. Yes, um, that's and yeah, it was once a city of like thousands of people. Mm-hmm. It's um, also that they mm-hmm. don't know anything, you know, anymore. Right, really. Yeah. Um, That's also the name of the sort of um, the area of the U.S. and Mexico that, of course, used to be united. I mean, before the United States. (laughs) So sort of southwestern U.S. and sort of northern Mexico, uh, which used to be the essentially the Aztec Empire. Aztlan is also the name for that and shows up throughout sort of not just Latinx, but really Chicanx culture um, and art. Uh, And so... One of the things I actually teach, I just taught one of Cherry Moraga's plays today to my grad students. She has a play that's an adaptation of Medea called The Hungry Woman. 
and then a play called Heart of the Earth about the Popova, which is the one we did today. Um, but Aslan features prominently the sort of mythical geographies that could have existed in The Hungry Woman. It's the sort of, it seems somewhat post-apocalyptic in the sort of imagined future where various lands have been restored to their ethnic inhabitants. Um, and inhabitants that came over to the Americas have sort of been given specific lands that they're allowed to have. Hmm. Yeah, and she sort of lays out this geography. But it is absolutely, right, it's a reminder of the sort of incredible cultures that existed um, that Spain very, very specifically stamped out. I mean, very determinedly and very specifically. Um, and then, of course, they were joined by the Portuguese, the French. Ah, uh, yes. I remember being told that there was a specific <laughs> meeting between the Spanish and Portuguese um, mm -hmm. at the court of one of the popes where they basically drew lines and divided up who got what part of the world. Yeah. So you get some of them in, yes. Brazil. you know, in... Portuguese. Brazil, South America, Mexico, the Philippines. Well, large and parts of Africa, which are, of course, Dutch, French, and Portuguese. Um, Lusophone Africa is the term for Portuguese-speaking Africa. Oh, that, I've never heard that yeah. term. Lusophone. Mm -hmm. It's, of course, you know, like Francophone, right? These are all the sort of Latin-based yeah. terms for the languages, you know? Hmm. Okay. <laughs> so, not necessarily what the Portuguese themselves would say, but this is the term, yeah. Yeah. But it is... I'm having a hard time turning the word Portuguese into some sort of phone, phone right. portmanteau, port, portophone. Right. That sounds weird. <laughs> I guess that makes sense, Lusophone. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure... You know, Anglophone, of course, is the English. It's not that one couldn't have, but that's the um, the sense, right? But yeah, the division of sort of the world. So the sense that essentially the history of the Middle Ages is what leads up to those moments, to essentially to colonization, to the modern world around the globe that thousand years before, what was going on everywhere. And even if things weren't connected at the time, they will become connected at the end of that period. The other interesting thing, though, is that a lot of stuff really is connected. Um, Europe is deeply connected to the Middle East, even to parts of Asia during that time. Um, the Americas, of course, there are huge trade networks across the Americas and out to islands, right? So that's something else that has sort of been worked on and is being worked on the sense in which there really was a lot more globalization before the moment in history that we really think of it as having happened, which is sort of what we call now the end of the Middle Ages. Yeah, that's one of my favorite medieval figures. I guess we would call him a medieval figure is Genghis Khan. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And he, his forces actually came pretty close to like Europe. Oh, yeah. Not all the way, but yeah. they got they got really close. Yes. Well, and a lot of the Middle East, they were being squeezed between his forces on the one hand and the crusaders on the other um and sultan baybars is the only ruler who defeats both of them this is under kubla i believe so his son the the younger khan yes grandson younger khan the empire didn't hold together as well after old old uh temujin yes passed away unfortunately it's hard to raise it's hard to raise good warriors <laughs> yes i don't know or good tyrants maybe he did better than alexander though <laughs> um alexander you know, his generals just divided it up. Yeah. But nonetheless, I mean, the force, the Mongol forces were still very, very successful. And this is actually one of the things that 
is sort of fortuitous for theater history in the Middle Ages, which is why I said medieval theater turns out to be awesome. It's just you have to be old enough to be allowed to read this stuff sometimes. <laughs> yes. There's an Egyptian playwright who is actually Iraqi. He's from Mosul, Iraq, and he's forced to flee because the Mongol forces are invading. And he flees to Cairo, which of course is the sort of light of the world at the time, 1300s. And he ends up becoming this really incredible court poet. He writes in really sort of elite flowery Arabic. But one of the things that also happens is that, of course, when you've got all these wars going on, um, there can be suppression of the arts. And so he goes through a few different rulers, um, some of whom like the arts and make him court poet, and then some of whom sort of suppress the arts and drinking and all of the things, right? The sense of religious purity will make us better warriors, make us, you know, more beloved to God. We won't be murdered. And so he ends up writing three plays that we have. They're shadow puppet plays. They're heavily satiric. Um, they're compared to Aristophanes. But Aristophanes was writing for a kindergarten audience compared to Ibn Daniel. <laughs> Ibn Daniel's plays are triple X rated. And I mean that very sincerely. Wow. They are shadow puppet plays. So, of course, it's not exactly pornography, but it still definitely is. <laughs> um, yeah. And the, so the level of satire about the religious hypocrisy is really striking. But he, and he's a phenomenal sort of figure. The plays are fantastic and fascinating. And it is a sort of wonderful comparison to people who are better known generally in theater history, partly because they are, you know, easier to read with an undergraduate group, um, like Aristophanes or, of course, Moliere, um, Tartuffe, for example, right? Religious hypocrisy. But it's really sort of this incredible set of plays. But that's also something that's really interesting is that he's writing a little bit with the eye of an immigrant, of course, right? He sort of fled to the city as a teenager. We're not entirely sure how he managed to become educated enough to do all the things he did. I mean, where did he end up with this learning? Was he self-taught? That's not incredibly clear. Uh, he was also um, a doctor. He somehow trained as an eye doctor. Theoretically, that was his profession. But essentially, right, he's living at this time of great turmoil. And there, of course, could have been an understanding about why the government might crack down on things. But he is not in an understanding mood. Um, and he had a poem he'd already written that he ends up including in one of the plays that's a hymn to Satan um, that laments the death of Satan, essentially, hmm. and how he's been killed because all the brothels are shut and nobody's allowed to drink, and right? Um, so, of course, this has killed him and how sad it is. And it's a sort of hymn um, to his, his demise. Yeah, this is why medieval theater really is, in many ways, <laughs> much more interesting than Renaissance theater. I just put that out there. Well... Yes. <laughs> yeah no um yep i was gonna say uh so before we go any further do you like the terms middle ages or medieval period dark ages what are the preferred Ooh. nomenclature yes um and like do you have do they refer to different eras ah. i guess i i know that it's almost a cliche in you know TV, um, if you watch a lot of science fiction time traveling shows like yes. I do, somebody <laughs> will turn up in the, the, the dark ages, quote unquote, yes. and make a remark about it. And somebody else would say, no, they weren't really that dark and all of that. Yes. Yes. I think um, there's a show right now, I think, Miracle Workers, The Dark Ages, 
um, it's an anthology show. I have so. seen an ad for yeah. that. And the thing is, I love the people on the show, but I haven't watched it yet. I'm sure I will. But I also just convinced someone to watch most of Black Adder. The first season of Black Adder, which is the medieval period, is the one I haven't seen. Because the friend who told me to right. watch it decades ago um, actually just told me to skip it. <laughs> That's what you told me yes. when you told me to watch Black Adder. Yes. And I have to say, I have gone back, I saw the first episode, and it's, it's not that it's not funny, but it is not what the later episodes are. And I do think that that is sort of one of the reasons, is this sense of the Dark Ages that Monty Python actually makes fun of, which is the moment um, in Holy Grail when the peasants are scrabbling around in the dirt. There are a few moments like that, actually. And they talk about oh, yes, it. The, uh, help, help, I'm being a Yes, pest. right. And of course, they're making fun of it that somehow that's what you do in the Middle Ages if you're a peasant is you play around in the mud. <laughs> and you're just putting mud on mud and piling mud on top of mud. Yes, they're, they're dirt farmers. Yes. And of course, they turn out to be very well educated in the political and legal system of their realm, right? So we get all of the satire. But that is something Monty Python has talked about various people in Monty Python, right, um, is the way in which that is the stereotype. And so that they always sort of had people crawling through the mud whenever there were peasants around. Yeah. But it was... There's a board game about this, too. There's, like, this really long, and I won't say... It's strategically intense ah. board game <laughs> called Agricola, Ooh. where you basically <laughs> pretend a to farmer? be a mud farmer, awesome. yeah. You know, and you can you can buy cows and pigs or sheep or whatever. Ah, to and, wallow in your mud. Yes. Yes. Awesome. You have your little cottage and you go from like mud floors to stone floors Ooh. eventually if you... Yes. Yeah. You have to work hard to get the stone right. floors. Right. I bet. Um, that's, yes. That's exactly sort of the, the premise, right, of a lot of theories about, I mean, popular theories, obviously, about the Dark Ages. And there is this funny sense always. I love to show the Monty Python satire. Because it, it should have become a cliche by now. But somehow it's not enough of a cliche for people to stop doing it. And obviously, the sense of a Dark Ages, there have been a few Dark Ages through history. And what it really means if historians decide to use the term, which they shouldn't usually, but occasionally they do. And what it means is that written records kind of disappear. And there is a bit of a moment, late antiquity, beginning of the Middle Ages when written records become a little more scarce for various reasons, right? There have been wars, there's been collapse of various governments. Um, so there aren't a lot of people keeping the records that there used to be and all of those things, right? The sort of system collapse, you don't have all the records being kept. Ordinary people aren't keeping diaries for the most part. So you do have that sort of scarcity of records. That's technically what a Dark Ages is, but it definitely, definitely, definitely misrepresents what's really going on, right? There's not necessarily <laughs> um, any more of a loss of culture or intelligence or whatever else people think disappeared um, than there is at any other time in a lot of ways, right? There's just a lot of hardship, like famine, war, plague, all those things. So generally speaking, you refer to the period of the Middle Ages that you study, so early Middle Ages, late antiquity is what you'd say, not the Dark Ages. The high Middle Ages, which is sort of the middle towards the end part, <laughs> that's really the flourishing. It's all the giant cathedrals. It's like the 12th, 12th century Renaissance Basically. era, beginning of the university. Yeah. And... Yep. So you, that's what you sort of do. You refer to the period. 
Um, and of course, if you study a specific geographical place, um, you might refer to it by the reign of someone, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so that's sort of what happens, right? Um, or you might say, you know, you might study a specific linguistic area, because remember, countries don't exist quite the way they do today. Oh, yes. Or countries do exist, but they're different frequently from the boundaries they have today, I guess. So you might say things like you study high middle German, <laughs> right? Um, and then you get, you sort of have to know the geographical area that is. And it's something actually a friend and I were talking about recently, that, for example, France likes to refer to itself as a country, but it really wasn't one for most of the Middle Ages. And so a lot of times people refer to certain towns as having been French, but they themselves at that time would not necessarily have thought of themselves as French. I think I remember this probably from playing um, Europa Universalis. Yes. Burgundy and yep. the, there is Aragorn. Aragon? Yes. Probably Aragon, Aragon yes. in the South. <laughs> Tolkien, see? And, uh, yes. Yep. Yes. I see what he did yes. there. Um, yeah. A couple of other... Yeah, absolutely. ...regions. Mm-hmm. And of course, I think we had talked about this, that Normandy, because Normandy also then invades England, we get the Norman kings, that Norman French can then also be Anglo-Norman French, which they can happen both in Normandy and in England, which can be confusing. But absolutely, right? It means that then there are people in England who think of themselves as being Norman, which is absolutely true. I suppose if you've read certain things like Ivanhoe or something, right? The Normans, the Saxons, right? That there, mm-hmm. that that was there was dis- there were distinctions there that people cared about. Yeah, I think that comes up in uh, a lot of the Arthurian. Certainly, they talk about it in yeah the uh, the Sword in the Stone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, the E. B. White. Yes. <laughs> but it may there's I remember a really long passage of all the different people sending troops to help Arthur and the Le Mort Arthur yes. and particular oh, yeah. who they were where they came from. Yes. And of course England has all its dialects. There's actually a play in Cornish, a world play in Cornish. Um, world, you know, it's the history of the world from creation to doomsday. So all of these places that the problem with history as legacy is that it can become propaganda. So thinking of England as a unifying country and saying all these things are English, all of this stuff is English. But of course, at the time, a lot of them wouldn't have thought of themselves as English. They weren't speaking a language, not even they weren't speaking a language that would become English. They frequently are speaking a different language, right? The languages of the British Isles are many. Many, yes. But that's true across Europe. That's true, of course, around the world. But there's a way in which nationhood becomes part of that history. And so that's something even, you know, medievalists who are being very specific about things sometimes will fudge that because it's just easier to say to someone, this was a town in France and not explain why it really wasn't. But the thing is also sometimes it matters that you make that distinction. Yeah. And this goes back to things like we said that you find in, you find in art, you find in plays, you find in literature. Um, that you do find in history, how people thought of themselves, right? Where do they record themselves as being? (laughs) It can be very helpful. So um, the morality play Mankind, written in England, was clearly written in a year, well, in the year, that Edward IV was not necessarily going to win back the throne from Henry VI, which is to say Henry VI is on the throne, 
he gets booted off by the Yorks, right? But Richard gets killed, so his son takes over. Yes, I, okay, I had a very complex family tree of all of them yep. when I took Shakespeare yes. back in, in <laughs> as an undergraduate. Yes. And I'm remembering there were a couple of... Uh, and they all have the same name. There's a Henry VI play. Yeah, there are three Henry VI. Yeah. Yeah. And he just couldn't stop writing that play. Yeah. Which honestly is really interesting because it's one of his early, early plays. I mean, the Henry VI are very, very early. So they're sort of the first history plays he wrote that we consider history plays, which is to say the ones about the kings. And there are some really brilliant things about them, right? But in a lot of ways, he's right. Shakespeare wrote about civil war. He wrote about civil war a lot. But his history plays are almost entirely about civil war or things that might become civil war. <laughs> There's always the threat of civil war. You can kind of see why with all the stuff that had been going on. And mm-hmm. I imagine, like, you know, he died yeah. shortly after James mm-hmm. took the throne. But the yeah. James Charles mm-hmm. Cromwell Charles James period was not an especially no. calm period for your average English person, perhaps. Well, it's not even that. Speaking of John Dee, right? And whether or not Marlowe really meant Faustus to be John Dee. Um, which I will leave up in the air for our viewers to decide. <laughs> um, maybe. But of course, the legend was already out there. But, you know, medieval legend, by the way. So we have um, Queen Elizabeth on the throne when Shakespeare's, you know, writing. And then James at the end. And Elizabeth takes over, of course, from her sister, Mary, <laughs> who is not well regarded by the immediate historians of Elizabeth's reign because, of course, she was Catholic and she tried to switch the country and there was a lot of bloodshed. But obviously Elizabeth killed a lot of people too. That's what monarchs do. The Pirates of Penzance has the great line about the pirate king probably couldn't stomach being a real king, right? Um, All of the dirty work he'd have to do. And the problem, of course, with both Mary and Elizabeth is that while they managed to be fairly successful, I mean, Elizabeth, of course, extremely successful, But one of the great things about Mary is the fact that she doesn't kill Elizabeth, which she honestly could have. And she doesn't, which means it's important for her that the stability be there, that the country go to her sister rather than sort of be up for grabs, for example, for Spain or something. And so that's really important because there are these women who are already viewed as potentially not strong enough rulers. They're not illegitimate rulers, right? England absolutely allows women on the throne. Women rule throughout the Middle Ages all over the place, and this is probably something we'll have an episode on because it's one of those interesting reminders that just because equality isn't great, you know, there are different ways of measuring it. Mm -hmm. So maybe we feel we have more equality today, but Almost no female CEOs, no female rulers, etc. Right. You know, so um, England can certainly have queens, but the fear is, of course, that a woman will have trouble, that a woman might marry a man who will cause trouble, which was sort of true of Mary's husband. That's Philip of Spain. But what happens is, right? We've had these civil wars, and Henry the Seventh finally wins because he's essentially the last person left alive. That's not entirely true, but. More or less. That's a good way to yeah. win. And he marries the one woman who's sort of still alive and who's also related sort of to the other side, right? So he unifies. That's the big thing, right? This becomes the myth. And we call it the War of the Roses, which they didn't call it at the time it happened, but the idea of uniting the roses, right? York and Lancaster. Mm-hmm. 
which is the Tudor rose. It's the two roses together, the white and the red. And we have Elizabeth and Henry marry. They have kids. Um, the oldest kid dies, right? Which is already not off to a good start. You're trying to solidify a legacy after all the civil yes. war that's happened, right? What do you do? It's a bad sign. Yeah, your oldest yeah. kid dies. And you named him Arthur, which is hugely symbolic. Ooh, yeah. So that's the last time that happened. But um, <laughs> the next kid sort of luckily is named Henry, so at least you get a continuation there. Hey, it's a good name. It is a good name. But you didn't know that that kid was going to take over, right? Um, and what happens if he doesn't work out? I mean, now you're starting to worry. Of course, he turns into Henry VIII. He's got a lot of issues, but he solidifies the country. He lives pretty long life. Great. Problem is, he can't manage to have a son. So is the country going to fall apart again into civil war when he dies? He finally has the son. The son gets put on the throne. But of course, he's young. Regents can tear apart the country in civil war. You don't know. They don't. But the kid dies. So now the oldest sister takes the throne. <laughs> she flips the religion. She kills a lot of people. But the country holds. She dies. The next sister gets the throne. You can see why people would be worried at this point. What is yes. going to happen? Are we going to descend back into civil war? Well, the next sister gets the throne. She flips the religion back. Now everyone's Protestant again. She kills a lot of people. But again, the country holds. And she lives a long time especially for then. And lo and behold, by the time she dies, the country has solidified enough that even though she never is actually willing to specify out loud who's going to take over, everyone knows who's going to take over. And the guy who's going to take over is, of course, the guy who's king of Scotland, whose mother, <laughs> Elizabeth, helpfully killed off. He never really knew her. And although she was Catholic, he, of course, was raised Protestant specifically so that he would get to take over the throne of England, which he then does. Right. Now, part of the job description, isn't it? You have to be yes. Protestant. Yeah. It has Much like you had to famously be Catholic to be king of France, yeah. mm -hmm. I think. You had to be Protestant to be prime minister, too. And I don't know. It eventually, I think, isn't 100% official anymore. Disraeli right. was not. Nope. He was right? Jewish. So... But I think you couldn't be Catholic. Oh, well, and he's okay. he's got to be he's got to be the only exception also I think honestly uh, there may I don't know if there have been others but he's probably the only exception was Tony Blair Catholic ah am I remembering that this wrong? is where we're getting to no <laughs> he was not raised he was not born raised Catholic he was born raised Protestant he became Catholic his wife is Catholic he practiced Catholicism oh. but he did not convert until he was out of office wow even though at that point I think. It, it could have been legally allowed, but he nonetheless, he did not convert until afterwards. Officially. Yeah. Everyone knew he was Catholic. Everyone knew he was practicing, but he did not officially convert until after. Yeah. So that is a longstanding tradition. Yes. yes. <laughs> but you can see, again, it's problematic, obviously. It is wrong for a democracy. But... Despite the fact Elizabeth managed to hold everything together, we've got a good run. We've had from Henry VII all the way through Elizabeth, now James. Everything's good. And then, of course, it goes straight downhill again after James, right? Yes. So there, there is that recurring... I mean, civil war is a huge issue. So Shakespeare doesn't necessarily see that coming. But, of course, he knows it will come because it always does, right? Mm -hmm. And so the fact that he lived through this period that was worrying but managed to be incredibly solid, of course he's thinking about it. Because it, 
anything could at any moment could have gone the other way. Um, so he writes all this stuff about civil war. And it is interesting because the morality play Mankind, which is where I started this conversation, has a reference to the year it's written in a, a few ways. But one of them is that it's the year of no king. And there's sort of Edward no king. And it's clearly a reference to the fact that Henry VII, when he's kicked off the throne the first time, isn't killed. He's sort of just shoved aside. Um, and Edward takes over. He's now the, right, his dad is dead. He's now the head. He takes over. He becomes Edward IV. Famously, this is one of the things Shakespeare, of course, when he starts figuring out the sort of great role that women played in history. Margaret, who's the wife of Henry, one of Shakespeare's favorite characters, she shows up in three plays, which is about as many plays as anyone shows up in. Because again, she's in Richard III, which she wouldn't have been historically Presumably she wouldn't have been hanging around the castle, but, you know, he wants to keep her around a little bit. She raises an army and reinvades to put Henry back on the throne. <laughs> and they battle for about a year. Edward IV has to run. It's very unclear who's going to win. Of course, we know that in the end, uh, Henry VII did sort of, I mean, he did sort of reclaim the throne for that year, theoretically. But obviously he ends up being deposed again. That time he is killed. And Edward IV, of course, will reign until he dies, and then we get all of this stuff with Richard III. But Mankind is apparently written in that year, where nobody knows who the king is going to be. And the references to the instability of the time, and the instability of loyalty, swearing loyalty to someone that maybe you shouldn't, first of all, I mean, that's a big thing. Should you be swearing loyalty to this person at all? In Mankind, of course, it's Mankind swearing essentially loyalty to these little devils. But essentially, right, that's the worry. First of all, are you swearing loyalty or fealty, right, to the right person? How do you necessarily know the right person? If you swear fealty to the wrong person, is it wrong for you to break your oath? <laughs> or is it the right thing to do because you chose the wrong person? All of these sort of questions of instability are a part of that play, which makes it a really interesting commentary about... I mean, it's, it's fascinating, right? It's, it's clearly the sort of piece of art that was created at this time of tremendous instability, it's hilarious, it's funny, it's satire, it's all of these things. It's body, there's poop involved, excrement. Middle Ages, of course, loves excrement, same as everybody does. But at the same time, it does give you this sort of window into the way they were using, in this case, theater, to deal with the uncertainty of the moment, which is sort of incredible, right? And very much sort of the same way that we do that today, right? So yeah. I was going to say a lot of this instability, like living through a period of instability mm -hmm. when you don't necessarily have leaders that you can tr rely on, for example, mm -hmm. it feels very familiar for yes. some strange reason. <laughs> yes. Uh, and the idea of using art as an outlet to explore these ideas or Absolutely. Um, cope with them yep. in some ways feels, I mean, we've got the universities closed now. Yep. We've got plague. Mm -hmm. We are bringing the Middle Ages back, yes. I yes. think. That's, I mean, the Middle Ages has definitely been trending, and medievalists are sort of proud. Um, <laughs> but we're also bringing back the 1920s, right? There are all the jokes at New Year's about bringing back the 20s. Yeah. But we are, right? The, I mean, the Spanish flu, which was actually probably from Kansas, happened in 1918. But nonetheless, right? That sense of that we've I wanted returned. to bring back, like, the... the the 1720s right. you know like i want i want a wig that's like four feet tall with a boat on yes. it i want a dress that takes up the entire doorway yep. you know i i want to have also i'm a huge fan of baroque music I have to yes say, so 
Yes, go back to that. back to back to Bach. You know, <laughs> yes, we do not need more swing. Right. He just had whichever birthday it was. Yes, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> we had a swing revival in the '90s, and we pretend that it didn't happen now. And I don't think we need another. I know, which is weird. It, no, it was. It was fun. When you know, plus you get like the jazz of the '20s. Yeah. I mean, Harlem Renaissance. There are a lot of great things that happen, and then of course you end the decade with a giant economic disaster hey yeah that's good hmm. <laughs> um, there's a lot going on absolutely yeah. right yeah but i think plague is definitely something else yes. we can talk about um the seventh seal now that my students are shut inside and they can't go see plays i'm posting online all of the links to things that are streaming which is wonderful right this is the plague in the modern age which is sort of incredible but i've also told them right they could if they want they could watch the seventh seal um, even though it is a film, it is, of course, related to current events yes. in some ways. <laughs> I mean, sort of. And um, is brilliant, right? And so I figured I'd encourage them to watch a classic movie. If Yeah. You know, things that are filmed on stage can sometimes be a little weird to watch. Although National Theatre Live does it really well, and they're going to start streaming. So. Yes. Um, oh. I think I saw a uh, performance they did of Frankenstein. Yes. Which was quite good. Oh, we see that every chance we get, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Johnny Lee Miller yeah. and Benedict Cumberbatch switching yes. roles. Yep. It's a fantastic adaptation. They're a fantastic, fantastic cast, everything. But also, speaking of sort of right times of instability and women, we'll definitely talk about women in the Middle Ages, all sorts of women, right? They're women writers, um, women composers sometimes they're the same person fantastic stuff but mary shelley writing this book right while hanging out you know in the famous like frigid summer that happened i think because like a volcano exploded yes right? uh was it krakatoa i think so yeah and so that sense right there wasn't a plague but it's not unlike us they're all sort of quarantined inside and what are you going to do you do art Right there's this time of instability. You're stuck here with your husband and these friends, and you're all brilliant. You're all kind of rowdy. You're all living lifestyles that are not really approved by society. <laughs> right, some more than others, but yes, your parents are kind of mad at you. Everyone's sleeping around, not necessarily, you know, with the acceptance of the people they're sleeping around on. Yeah, and from it we get one of the great, great sort of novels about. I mean, it is, it's, of course, not an American novel, but it's one of the great novels of the time, right? When people say, like, writing the great novel, Frankenstein is definitely one of them, right? And the sense of sort of the ambition of man, very specifically, right? Man. This right. isn't a general men and women. Right, that guy. This is the ambition of man, right? To be able to create life the way women do, essentially. We should call it Freudianly right. womb envy. Um, yes, <laughs> which, of course, is how the play, the National Theatre Live version starts sort of brilliantly. Right. But you also have, you know, it's considered a is also the great sort of gothic novel, which is fair. Right. But the the sense of humanism. Right. What is a creation? What do you owe your creation? <laughs> right. Um, all of that stuff, which is yeah. brilliant. Well, I think we should probably wrap it up for today. But and. Definitely still important. Ooh, can I bring up Revenants quick? Revenants? Yes. yes. Okay, go. That I'm just going to say that Frankenstein 
does have relevance to the Middle Ages, and we'll perhaps talk about zombies and revenants and the undead in a future episode. Okay. So, yes. uh, I think we've learned a lot today. Bullet point format, Middle Ages, 500 to 1500. They were named that because the Renaissance sort of thought they were a waste of time. <laughs> Yep. And there are a lot of links between the Middle Ages and our modern lives. And it's definitely something that's worth exploring. And not just because we're all stuck inside all the time now, but because yes. because these uh, links to the past can help, you know, help you learn about who you are as a in the world, in society. And so if that sounds good, I hope you will join us for future episodes of Ask a Medievalist. All right. Yay. You should have some sort of sign-off, but instead I'm just going to say bye. Bye, everybody. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com.